Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles today to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Last week, the sermon was a shift, and it was a shift from four parables. In Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 24, we have the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the seed growing, and the seed multiplying. And then we experienced the shift last week to four miracles, four miracles in 435 through 543. And last week we had the first of those miracles. It was Jesus calming the storm, the earthquake megastorm, and Jesus showing his power and authority over nature. Today, he's going to exercise power and authority over spiritual forces, and then next week, we will see him exercise that same power and authority over illness and death. So again, we've had a shift from four parables now to four miracles. And in today's miracle, Jesus is going to encounter this guy. Pretty attractive, right? Handsome guy. Um, He's actually a demonized man. The scripture says he was naked, shackled, and living among the tombs. But ultimately, he becomes a wonderful example of what happens when the divine confronts the demonic. When the divine confronts the demonic. And we'll see that today today the text breaks down into three main parts. We're going to have the man's condition in verses 1 through 9, the man's conversion in verses 10 through 17, and then the man's commission in verses 18 through 20. Now, in light of the fact that this is a longer passage, 20 verses, uh, we're just going to walk through it verse by verse rather than read it as a whole. I always prefer to read it as a whole, but in light of the length, we're going to kind of attack it this way instead today. So let's look at that first section, the man's condition in verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 begins, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, Jesus and his disciples coming to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, what time of day would this be? What time of day would this be? Likely this is late in the day. How do we know? Well, because the day began with those four parables that we were just talking about, where Jesus is teaching in a boat off the coast of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And then the day continued as they set sail. They were going across the lake and then that storm came up, the earthquake megastorm blew up, and then now, finally, after all these other events, they're arriving at their destination. Again, the region of the Gerasenes, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where maybe, just maybe, they'll be able to get that needed rest that they set out for in the first place. The text continues in verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, There's that word again, right? Mark's favorite word, immediately. In Greek, it is euthos. It means immediately. It's used 59 times in the New Testament, 41 of them in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark loves this word. He uses it continuously for the purpose of emphasizing Jesus in action. Jesus in action, continually on the move, doing the work and the will of the Father. Well, what happens here immediately in chapter 5? Back to verse 2 again. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now you remember an unclean spirit, as Mark uses that phrase, is a demon. One of the angels who rebelled with Satan and now seeks to oppose God's work, to sabotage God's work at every turn. God brings light. What do demons bring? Darkness. God speaks truth. What do demons speak? Lies. God brings freedom. What do demons bring? Bondage, which is the situation of the man in our text today. Now, the good news that we want to trumpet loud and clear today is that God is greater. God is greater. He's greater than Satan. He's greater than even the strongest demon. And so, while we are no match for demons, as we are but dust, we are flesh, demons are no match for God. Amen? While we are no match for demons, make sure we're very clear on that. Demons are no match for God, and we will, in fact, see this playing out in our text today. However, before we go any further, we need to address a potential problem in our text, okay? And if you know kind of the other gospel narratives on this event, you may recognize this. Mark says in Mark 5, 2, how many men were there? One. He says there was a man with an unclean spirit. But watch what Matthew says about this event. Matthew says in Matthew 8, 28, same event. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Now the critics would say, aha, yet another example of contradictions in the Bible. But is it? Really? Remember, in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, it allows for the Holy Spirit to work through the unique personalities and perspectives of human authors. That's part of the miracle. Um, this is inerrant scripture, it's infallible, it is inspired, but God works through human personalities and through human authors. And so likely what we have here is the fact that there are two demonized men living among the tombs, but Mark, being Mark, because it's what Mark does, he chooses to focus on one of them. Now, why does he choose that? Not exactly sure. Perhaps one of the men was more dominant than the other, or it's simply an example of Mark streamlining his story. It's not altogether different than the scene at the tomb. You might recall in the resurrection of Jesus, we have Mark 16, verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw how many men? A young man, which is actually an angel. And then what does Luke say about it, though? Luke says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, how many men? Two. Two men stood by them dazzling. So was there one angel or two? Well, if Luke says there were two, there were probably two. But as it was the case in our text today, Mark chooses to streamline the event and focus on just one. It's not a contradiction. It's a unique perspective. Just the freedom of the human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write using their unique personalities and perspectives. Now, in light of the fact that Mark focuses on one demonized man, we're going to do the same. We're going to focus on the one. And he is graphically described in verse 3. Check this out. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And that word for subdue is very, very telling. It, it literally means the taming of a wild animal. And so in so many ways, this is very sad, this is very tragic, this one who had been created in the very image of God 
That's something we all need to remember, isn't it? When we come across people that we kind of find maybe distasteful for one reason or another, and maybe they're difficult to love, they are people who have been created in the very image of God, including this man. But he's now, rather than being that man created in the image of God, he's now more like a wild animal than a human being. And that's always Satan's desire to come and to steal our God-given humanity as he created us originally to be. We continue with verse 5. It says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now put yourself in the sandals of the disciples for a moment. You were just terrified by the earthquake megastorm on the Sea of Galilee, right? And then you were even more terrified by the fact that the one who had power and authority over that storm was in the boat with you. And now you're terrified yet again, this time by a naked, shackled, demonized man living in a graveyard. That's quite a day. That's quite a day. Well, the text tells us that the guy was in really, really rough shape. And he serves as a graphic picture for us of what the devil desires for each one of us. Reminding us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy Now, foundationally, this affects us all spiritually, correct? But it must be stated that, listen carefully, spiritual bondage also affects us physically, it affects us relationally, and it affects us emotionally. There's the spiritual root, but that spiritual root produces bitter fruit in our lives physically, relationally, and emotionally. And so often we try to, again, that whole dandelion thing that I bring up from time to time, we try to lop off the heads of the dandelions before dealing with the root. We must deal with the root, which in this case is spiritual bondage. We see here in Mark 5, for this man in demonic bondage, physically it impacted him. He was shackled, literally shackled with metal restraints. And I can only imagine what other physical pain, what other physical ailments and symptoms were plaguing this man's existence. His spiritual bondage impacted him physically. It also impacted him relationally. He was naked and forced to live in isolation among the tombs without friends, without family. So his spiritual demonic bondage impacted him relationally. It also impacted him emotionally. We see him, the the mental anguish that he must have been experiencing as he was crying out, as he was cutting himself, the voices in his head that he just couldn't escape, and then the self-harm of the cutting. Now, spoiler alert, you already know the story likely, but we'll see in just a bit how Jesus, when Jesus set the man free spiritually, guess what else happened? He experienced freedom in all these other areas as well. He experienced freedom physically, relationally, emotionally. Well, we continue in verse 6 where it says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, I think there could be possibly two things going on here. Number one, the demons in the presence of Jesus have to fall down before Jesus and his power and authority. I think that's very likely. But number two, something I want you to see about this, very important as we practically apply these principles to our lives, the demonized man still had the ability on some basic fundamental level to exercise his will in coming to Jesus. Do you hear me? It is true of this man who was in extreme demonic bondage. It is true for us today. I don't believe that anyone who is demonized is purely a helpless victim with no say in their situation. We can't just say, the devil made me do it, 
as if we had no ability to exercise will in that situation. I don't believe we're ever completely under the control of demons. This man was able to, at least on some fundamental level, exercise his will in coming to Jesus and falling down before him. There is always the opportunity and the ability to run to Jesus, to fall down before the one who is able to set us free. Are we with each other right now? Very important. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now what we have here is the demon hijacking the vocal cords of the man. This is the demon speaking through the man. And actually stating some really good theology. Let's take a look at the demon's good theology. First, the demon demonstrates good Christology. Christology has to do the doctrine of who Jesus is. Um, he calls Jesus son of the most high God. That'll preach. Very accurate, very true. Now, why would the demon say this? Well, number one, because it's absolutely true. Had to acknowledge it. And one thing we know from scripture is at the end of the day, every knee will bow. Say that word, every. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that includes every demon, that includes Satan himself, that includes every human being. But there may have actually been a second reason that the demon makes the statement. You see, it was the belief, kind of a superstitious belief in that century, that to know or state an adversary's name was to gain control over them. And so this may have been a futile attempt on the part of the demon to get an upper hand over Jesus in this conflict, even though they should have known much better. Whether that or not is true, the demon shows good Christology, but also good eschatology. Eschatology has to do with the doctrine of the end times, how everything will come to a conclusion. And the demon shows a clear awareness of his ultimate fate, doesn't he? As Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the torment that the, de the demon was talking about. and says, hey, don't, don't send me there now. I, don't send me to the place where I know ultimately I will go for final judgment into the lake of fire, but don't send me there now. The demon was afraid that Jesus was going to kind of jump to the end of the story and send the demon where he know he would be at the end of all things. And so we see here the demon's good Christology and also the demon's good eschatology. Do not torment me. All of which really needs to remind us that salvation isn't about your Bible knowledge. It isn't about your theological knowledge. Likely the demons know their Bible and they know their theology better than you do. Do you know that? Rather, your salvation is about personally and experientially knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Personally, experientially, not just knowing about it. The demons know about it. We must know him on that far deeper level. This is knowledge the demons do not have and can never have. On to verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, when Jesus asks a question, is it because he doesn't know the answer? No, Jesus knew the answer, and nor is he you know, using that superstition of the day to attempt to gain the upper hand by knowing the demon's name. J Jesus doesn't need that. 
Rather, he asked the demon's name to reveal the significant plight of this poor man. He isn't just oppressed by one demon, but by how many? A, a legion of them. In the Roman army, a legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, did this man literally have 6,000 demons oppressing him? Maybe. Or that number is just meant to communicate that there were a lot of them. And I think it's also meant to communicate to us the nature of these demons, that they were waging war against this man's soul, attacking him relentlessly. And was the man winning or losing? He was losing. He was losing. He desperately needed a savior to defeat this legion of demons and to set him free. So here as the divine confronts the demonic, we have the man's condition, which that's about as extreme as it gets, isn't it? Number two, we have the man's conversion. This is where things take a much, much better turn in verse 10. Look at there with me. It says, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, again, it says he begged. It's actually referring to the demons who have hijacked the man's vocal cords and are speaking through him. And the demons demonstrate, I love this. The demons demonstrate that they are no match for Jesus. How do we know? Well, they know that they will be cast out of the man. The only question is where? Where are they going to go? So they beg Jesus, again, surrendering, acknowledging that, hey, this is going to happen. We're going to get cast out. Jesus is in charge. They beg Jesus to at least let them stay in the region. Let us, let us be where we are and not have to go to their final place of torment in the lake of fire. Again, I love that image of the demons begging Jesus. It so clearly shows their true status, subservient to Jesus, and it shows the true status of Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, in light of this, the demons make a request in verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Now, if you remember, Jews don't have anything to do with pigs, right? They were considered to be unclean. So why is there a giant herd of pigs on this hillside? Well, remember, this is the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Who lives there? Gentiles. This is Gentile territory. Gentiles had no issue with pigs. That was a Jewish thing. And demons apparently have no issue with pigs because they were asking actually to be able to deliver, be delivered there. They preferred the pigs to the lake of fire. So they asked Jesus to send them into the swine. And Jesus responds in verse 13. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Can you imagine what a scene that must have been? You know, um, a lot of different scenes in the Bible that would have been really interesting to be present for. How about this one? You know, to see the man with the legion of demons and then to see the demons leave and then inhabit these pigs and to go rushing headlong into the water and drown. Whew, that's a lot. That's a lot. Just as Jesus had earlier said a word and calmed the earthquake megastorm, now he says a word and delivers a man from a legion of demons, which then inhabit 2,000 pigs. I guess it's three demons per pig. Who then run into the sea and drown. Over the years, there have been some, and maybe some of you animal lovers out there, right? You're saying, 
what's Jesus got against these pigs, right? And isn't that kind of cruel and inhumane to the pigs as well as costly to the pigs' owners? Why did Jesus destroy the pigs? Likely Jesus did this on purpose as a visible picture, demonstration of the destructive character of these demons. That whether in a man or in pigs, demons are all about fulfilling the mission of their master, which is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And for all who saw it, it was an object lesson they will never forget. Well, imagine that you were entrusted with the care of those 2,000 pigs, and you just watched that which was entrusted to you drown in the lake. What are you going to do? You're going to try to make up some kind of story, I guess. Verse 14 says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15 And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, oh, this is so great, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Again, what was the response of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm? Fear. What was the response of the townspeople when Jesus delivered the man from 6,000 demons? Fear. Why? Because it was evident in each one of these episodes that a power greater than any other was right there in their midst. That power that calmed the earthquake megastorm now transformed the man who had a legion of demons so that he was, as it says, clothed, and in his right mind. I love that image. The man who was months, moments ago more like a wild animal than a human being is now resembling the image of God that he was created to be and was always meant to be. And as Jesus set him free spiritually, note what else happened. I promised we would see this. In the demonic bondage, it impacted him physically as he was shackled. Now physically he's free. Demonic bondage impacted him relationally. He was naked and had to live among the tombs, isolated from society and relationship. Now he's clothed and he's home. Demonic bondage impacted him mentally. He was crying out and he was cutting himself. And now it says mentally he's in his right mind. Also something that is subtle, but it's important. What was his physical posture in those preceding verses? What does it say he was doing? Sitting. Before he was kind of a roamer, right? Couldn't sit still. He was a roamer. Now he's calm. He's sitting. As we said earlier, spiritual bondage affects us physically, relationally, and emotionally, but so does spiritual freedom. So does spiritual freedom. And I love this next picture. This was like from some like um, flannel graph, you know, kind of depiction of the scene. But this is what I envision going on here. It's a, it's a picture of the demonized, formerly demonized man in a home. I'm guessing it's the home of his brother, wouldn't you say? And now he's got his nephew on his lap while the other kids play. And you've got the brother and the wife looking on. And the man who was once like a wild animal has been restored spiritually, physically, relationally, and emotionally. Such a a graphic image of the transformational power of Jesus. 
Surely everybody in town is going to be thrilled, right? Not so much. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This has been called one of, if not the saddest verses in the Bible. When you really stop to kind of grasp the significance of it. People who have encountered the compassion and the power of Jesus, at the end of the day, they don't want him to be there. And they even beg him to leave. Now, why would they do this? Why would anyone want Jesus to leave? Likely because, watch this, the presence of Jesus will always bring disruption to our lives. The presence of Jesus will always bring disruption to our lives. Now, make no mistake, it's always disruption that will ultimately be for our good, amen? But it's disruption, nonetheless. Disruption which requires of us our complete surrender to his lordship. If we truly understand what it means that Jesus is Lord and we are to surrender our entire beings to him, that's disruptive. That's disruptive. And so confronted with this disruption, the townspeople begged Jesus to leave. And guess what Jesus did? He left. He left. Interestingly, there is no biblical record that Jesus ever returned. And so, as divine confronts demonic, that's the man's condition, the man's conversion, but lastly, it ends on such a high note, the man's commission. The man's commission. Look at verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, meaning Jesus, Jesus has done his job, the people have begged for him to leave, he's going to honor their request, he's going to hit the road. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Good for him, right? That impulse to be with Jesus and to be counted among his disciples is right and good. But verse 19 surprises us. Jesus did not permit him. Jesus did not permit him. You know, it's interesting. There are three prayers to Jesus in this passage. The demons essentially said a prayer. They begged of him, send us to the pigs. How did Jesus answer? Yes. The people prayed a prayer. They begged, depart from us. And what did Jesus say? Yes. But this delivered man, he prays. He begs and says, let me go with you. And what does Jesus say? Nope which must have initially greatly disappointed the man. Have you ever been disappointed by a no from Jesus initially? Only then to recognize he had something much bigger and much greater for you in mind than what you would initially thought? You see, the man was initially disappointed until he recognized the honor and magnitude of what Jesus was calling him to do. Verse 19 continues. But said to him, Jesus says to the man, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, I wouldn't say this dogmatically, but it could be argued that this is the first called missionary. Could be argued that this was the first called missionary called by Jesus himself. And don't miss the people group that Jesus is sending this man to minister to. What is that people group? It's Gentiles, not Jews. It's Gentiles, which tells us, again, something about the heart of Jesus, not just for Jews, but for the whole world. And as it says in verse 20, 
Then the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, what exactly is the Decapolis? The word Decapolis literally means ten cities. Ten cities. And specifically, in this case, it is a group of ten Gentile cities, heavily Greek-influenced, all but one of which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And what I want you to notice about this, it really stood out to me, these towns are not like right next to each other. There's some distance between them. And so for this delivered man to witness to all ten of these cities, it would require a missionary journey of sorts, kind of like that taken by the Apostle Paul, right? This man who once was in spiritual bondage to 6,000 demons is now a missionary to the Gentiles going on his own missionary journey, which I think is so fantastic. Such a beautiful picture, again, of the transformational power of Jesus. And so as divine confronts demonic, we have the man's condition, the man's conversion, and then the man's commission. Let's shift to application. How should we then live? And uh, I thought this, this one might be a good opportunity for me to hear from you initially, as we do from time to time. If you're in the comments or on the live stream, I'll do my best to kind of repeat back to you what I hear. But how do you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning about how to apply this to your lives? If you have something specific, would you just raise your hand and I'll point to you and you can belt it out. How do you sense the Holy Spirit saying, this is how we should apply this? Somebody get us started? Or do you want me to walk over to the commons and... <laughs> Give me one. Need to ask what? Good. Good. There, there, we have a part to play in that, Bill. We need to ask. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in my points of application, but that's exactly true. That's exactly true. Give me another one. Yes. Good. And you know what? This man did not have a Bible degree, did he? He didn't know much at that point. But what could he tell? He could tell what Jesus had done for him. And I think, you know, because I hear people say, you know, I would be much more bold in my witness if I had more knowledge or I knew what to say. And you know what? Got to get past that. Got to get over that. I mean, it really comes down to what has Jesus done for you? And if you can't answer that question, okay, not to cause you to question your salvation this morning, but I might question, what has God done for you lately? And if there's a need for a fresh wind of God's spirit to blow into your life and to give you a renewed understanding of just how marvelously saved you are, then ask for it to be so. Because at baseline level, every single one of us, regardless of our Bible knowledge, can tell what God has done for us to someone else. Give me one more. Those are good. One more. Yes. Oh, that's a great one. You cannot be too far gone for deliverance. I don't know of anybody much further gone than this guy, right? 6,000 demons. Now he's a missionary. I hope that encourages some of you. We, in our prayer time earlier in the sanctuary, um, someone prayed about prodigals. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. All right, let me give you three. And uh, we're going to take a bit of a unique approach this morning. It's going to seem kind of weird because we're going to apply three lessons from the demons. All right, when's the last time a preacher said, hey, you need to learn from these demons? But I think um, they have something to teach us, even though they are bent on our destruction. But I, what, I, what I like about this is um, it's an opportunity for us to kind of make a public spectacle of them as well. So that's a good thing. Um, so the first lesson from the demons is hell is real. Hell is real. 
Remember verse 7? Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, I beg of you, I pray to you, do not torment me. Do not send me to final judgment. Do not send me to the lake of fire. And what's interesting is that the demons are so desperate to avoid hell, they beg to be sent into a herd of pigs. Um, Spurgeon had an interesting quote about this. He said, they, the demons, would sooner go to the bottom of the sea than go to their own dreadful home. And if we are as wise as devils are, we shall dread beyond all things to be driven there. May God grant that none should among us may ever lift up his eyes in torment and find himself in that awful deep. Now, how many of you really enjoy hellfire and brimstone sermons? But you know, we can go too far the other way, can't we? And never talk about hell, never talk about judgment. I think that's exactly the way Satan would want it. Truth of the matter is, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. And because the reality of judgment through conscious torment in a lake of fire for all eternity ought to terrify us. And it ought to drive us to our knees, recognizing our need for a savior. Jesus died on the cross in your place, paying the price for your sins so that you would never have to go to a place of judgment and experience what the demon said, anything but that. Jesus invites you to turn from your sins and to, to turn to him alone for forgiveness, surrendering your life to him as both Savior and Lord. And as such, you can lay your head on your pillow at night and have no fear whatsoever of the judgment to come. No one has to go to hell. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so the demons, I believe, teach us that hell is real, but they also teach us that spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan is real. Demons are real. They are bent on your destruction. If you're not a believer yet, they will do all that they can to prevent you from becoming a believer. If you are a believer, they will do all that they can to torment you and to keep you from the freedom and fruitfulness that are rightfully yours in Jesus Christ. Which may cause you to say, Chad, are you saying that Christians can be demonized? And that is exactly what I am saying. Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying when he was writing to Christians in Ephesus. And he said in Ephesians 4.27, do not give the devil a foothold. A base of operations in your life. Now we see that on an extreme level, again, with the demonized man today. And with believers having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, believers cannot be possessed by Satan, by demons, but they can absolutely be oppressed by demons. Demons are able, even in the life of believer, to exercise a certain amount of influence and a certain amount, a certain level of bondage. I believe that there are lots and lots of Christians today who are demonized to one degree or another, needlessly so, needlessly so, living in some form of bondage. But again, the truth of the matter is, it doesn't have to be that way. 
Why? Because of lesson number three learned from the demons, which is this. The power of Jesus is real. Hell is real. Spiritual warfare is real. The power of Jesus is real. And as we saw in the passage today, the power of Jesus is far greater than Satan, than his demons, even six thousands of them. They bow before him. They beg of him. Truly greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. So no Christian has to ever live in bondage. We have everything that we need to be set free. But just as Bill Benson was saying, we got to apply it. We got to apply that to our lives. And it's a very simple formula, but it's where we get tripped up. Here's the formula. Freedom equals surrender. Freedom equals surrender. When we repent of the areas of our lives where we have given the devil a foothold and we surrender those areas to Jesus, we realign ourselves with the presence and power of Jesus, enabling him to have his rightful place of authority in our lives, then victory is sure. Freedom is our birthright as children of God. The problem is our unwillingness to surrender. Just like the townspeople who would rather live, we would rather live in our familiar bondage than welcome the disruptive freedom of Jesus which demands our surrender. You see that? And that, my friends, is a horrible and tragic decision that leads us to needlessly live in bondage, enabling the demonic to keep us from being as fruitful and free as God intends his children to be. And can I just say this? Um, I don't mean to oversimplify it. You may very well need some help in walking through what it means to surrender, okay? So I don't, again, I don't want to oversimplify it. The principle is that simple. The application of it might be a little bit more intensive in terms of how we do that together. No one should get stuck in that. There is help. There is help for those of you who say, you know what, I want that. I want that and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be free. If you're there but you're stuck, would you please reach out and let us help you walk that path to freedom which involves surrender. So three lessons learned from the demons today. Hell is real, spiritual warfare is real, but the good news is the power of Jesus is real. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these images before us that capture our attention and teach us biblical truths. God, I pray for any who are here this morning. Number one, those who are not yet believers and Satan's doing all he can to keep them that way. God, I pray that they would fall on their knees before you even this very moment that they would turn from their sins and turn to you alone for forgiveness. And as they surrender themselves to you completely, that you would meet them there and do an absolutely profound and transformational work in their lives the way that you did in this man in our story today. God, for those who are believers, but God, they know that there are areas of bondage. They're not free. They're not fruitful. God, I pray that you would remove from them the lie that this is just how it has to be. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And God, would you give them a fresh vision of your power and your ability to bring transformation when it is combined with our surrender. 
And so, God, we surrender. Holy Spirit, convict us of those areas where we are not surrendered, where we have given the devil a foothold, and would you set us free? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.